Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership through the lived experience of others. In each episode, we meet a leader who's been there and explore their successes and challenges in situations ranging from major combat operations to handling the disbandment of a regiment. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwatch. I'm a journalist and broadcaster, but also a captain in the British Army Reserve, serving with the rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who realised that enabling changes in culture and performance required giving his team the space to experiment. And we knew we were going to get things wrong and we wanted to maximise that experience. And the, sort of the phrase we used to live by was, we're going to fail fast, we're going to learn quick. He also recognised the importance of honesty and humility in leadership. I'd probably say every time I've had to have those difficult conversations, whatever underlying friction existed before was extinguished immediately. Major James Beckett commissioned into the 2nd Battalion the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment in 2010. He deployed onto Herrick 15 in Afghanistan a year later as a battlefield casualty replacement serving with the 1st Battalion. After Afghanistan, he took over command of the reconnaissance platoon and then became an instructor at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. He worked at the Ministry of Defence in a staff job countering violent extremist organisations and then moved on to adjutant. He worked in Joint Force Headquarters and took over subunit command at 2nd Battalion PWRR, overseeing their rebadging as 2nd Battalion the Ranger Regiment. This conversation with James covers leadership in many forms, from combat in Afghanistan to the aftermath of hurricanes in the Bahamas, and from teaching leadership to officer cadets to bridging the gap between civilian and military cultures. We started by discussing how leadership requires skills that are hard to teach at Sandhurst or Brecon. I think what it doesn't necessarily prepare you for some of the, the difficult conversations that you might have to have. When I first took over Recce Batoon, actually, it was after I got back from tour. The sergeant had been there for, for some time. He was very, very good. He hadn't had an officer. And stepping into that, I think he felt like he'd sort of lost his role and his position. It was one of those moments, you know, he's quite, <laughs> quite a big guy. He's fairly intimidating. It's just one of those where you know you've got to do something, otherwise it will continue. And it's one of those moments where you sort of just have to take a big breath and, and have those difficult conversations because it's fundamentally what you are there to do is make those hard decisions both, both in camp and out. I remember those early difficult conversations quite clearly and I think they just get easier as time goes on. And what were the sorts of challenges that you would have in those conversations? What were the friction points? More than anything, you know, you've got some very experienced senior NCOs and they know how to do your job just as well as you do. And they will probably wonder sometimes why you have to do it and why they can't. And you bring other strengths to, to the team. But more than anything, you know, something with junior officers, it's the ability to think about critical problems and, and difficult problems. You're both trying to explain that to them, but also just to allow them to sort of remember that you're employed for a reason. And um, 
to try and rebalance that team because ultimately you'll be stronger together than you are just him alone or her, I guess. And you dealt with that just through one-on-one conversations in the office, talking things through. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> about how to about how to run the platoon effectively. You know, I was always conscious that I didn't want this big confrontational moment, but it was just to sort of explain, well, look, you know, I, you've been doing a great job, um, you know, up until now, but there's certain responsibilities that should lie with, with me in the same way that they probably wouldn't want me to order ammunition and, and do their sort of routine G4 business um, or platoon sergeant business, I should say. And so it's just being very clear about whose role, you know, each task uh, sort of lies under. Well, you had this very early on in your career, didn't you, when you went and did your first operational tour. Can you talk me through a bit about the context of what had happened and why that was a particularly sensitive role to step into? Yeah, so for Herrick 15, I was aligned as a battlefield casualty replacement. I went out to Bastion for a 10-day period where you get qualified and do your sort of training. And then it's a case of waiting to see if you're required and you'll fly back out. During that 10-day period, I spent a bit of time walking around Bastion, speaking to different battle group headquarters, because as far as I was concerned, I was pretty excited to be there. I wanted to go on tour. I didn't have a tour lined up, so this, to me, was it. And um, whilst I was there, my sister battalion was already on that tour, and unfortunately, they had an incident where an individual was killed and there was a few other casualties, including at the time, the platoon commander. So I was asked one evening if I still wanted to stay because there was a, a job available. And so I was pushed forward to the company location and I took over a platoon, which was then obviously under strength and pretty sort of psychologically weary in a really isolated location, which also had other sort of like mental effects. And it was a pretty stressful situation for them at the time for me to then walk into. <laughs> so there's this platoon that have just lost their commander, a couple of the mates, and they've had a death. And then you're flown in mm. to then take over command. How did you feel in that moment? And what was the first thing you did once you got there to start building that relationship with the platoon? I, I remember when they first said I was going to stay, I was you're a bit nervous about it anyway, but I was excited. It was what I joined the army to do. I joined the infantry to, to go out on ops. And I remember bumping into one of the injured lads in Bastion. I was sleeping next to him, just waiting to go forward. He was asking me questions and so forth. I think he was trying to get a feel for how keen I might have been for that job. And obviously I was, but I think on that conversation alone, I then had a feeling that perhaps I ought to temper my desires with what the team needed at the time. So when I arrived down there, the actual checkpoint itself, it was... It's a miserable place. Some of the walls are falling down. You know, there's a horrible pit in the center of the, the checkpoint. It was winter, it's all full of wet mud. There's a quagmire everywhere. And obviously with the casualties, they weren't in particularly high spirits. I didn't want to sort of walk in there and suddenly change everything all at once. That's one of the things I often described at Sandust, actually, it was, you know, new platoon commander arrives and in that two year period, they change everything and someone else turns up and does the same. So. Conscious from that conversation, when I first arrived, I remember sitting everyone down and said, well, look, I'm not going to change anything immediately unless it's for a safety reason. And that presented its own challenge because my entire deployment was 
because of an incident that had happened. And I was quite conscious that as the enemy were adapting how they behaved, then we probably needed to as well. You know, I could already identify some changes that I needed to implement. And it was it was a difficult thing to try and manage with, with a team who were quite sensitive about change at the time. So how did you manage that implementation of change? It, it was difficult. And I think I, I spent probably initially, rather than just implementing it writ large, having a series of conversations to try and subtly, I guess, make my position known till such a time that I kind of reached a natural conclusion in which either they were able to recognise the issue or it was an open enough discussion to then address the problem directly. I mean, I, I can't really recall the actual conversation, but there's a couple of actual procedures that we would conduct that I was pretty keen to change. But rather fortunate, it sort of started to come quite naturally. People were a bit more willing, you know, in time. But it was also a difficult thing for me to try and introduce because I hadn't been through the, the mission-specific training in advance. I'd just had my sort of 10 days in theatre, so I was trying to rapidly learn everything they were. And only once you've done that can you start to understand why you might behave in certain ways or use certain tactics. And, you know, I was kind of conscious that I might not have had the credibility to make these changes because I hadn't been there, you know, for the first sort of four weeks of their tour fighting alongside them. And so did you use a process of asking them, are there things we could be improving here so that they started to think that there might be things that could be improved? And in, in many cases, did they effectively start to generate the solutions themselves? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you described it better than I could. So, <laughs> but, but yes, um, asking them why they did some things in the first instance, you know, when they start to explain it, they then have to understand or try and rationalise it to themselves. It then became much easier because they could see the flaws in the logic themselves as opposed to me having to introduce it. So, I mean, that was early on in my career. That probably wasn't necessarily uh, deliberate or by design it was just what felt natural at the time because I was so conscious of of enforcing a lot of this change but yeah it certainly wasn't as calculated about that kind of thing as I might be now we'll come back to the way you've worked with change at company command a bit later on but I think it's interesting talking to you about this that it was something that you started to identify as a as a, as a critical component of leadership early on after the operational tour and then time in the record platoon, you ended up as a platoon commander at Sandhurst, mm. so teaching at the place you'd commissioned from. What was that experience like for you? What did it teach you about leadership and the things we need to know? I had a wonderful time here because you've got an audience that are so willing to learn, more so than I'd, I'd worked with before. And the opportunity that gives you to really try and develop a group of people into good officers was was hugely rewarding and so when I look at what the key things were that I was really trying to sort of inculcate into them it was probably twofold the first was the sort of the difficult conversations I'd um, had them and seen them or perhaps I'd had them and seen others avoid them which is probably where I'd I knew the value of them. And just quickly on that yeah what when you'd seen it happening did avoiding those conversations lead to? Division, perpetual friction, a team that doesn't doesn't sing together, doesn't mm. you know, there's no harmony to it. it. It made life very very difficult and unpleasant for the individuals involved, but it resonates all the way down to the team itself. Um, and whereas if you have those difficult conversations early on, or whenever you spot those problems coming up, then it might be uncomfortable, but it helps the individuals and the team to function better. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd probably say every time I've had to have those difficult conversations whatever underlying friction existed before 
was extinguished immediately. It only ever led to to better things. I mean, you don't have to be friends with everyone in this job, but you have to find a way to have that mutual respect and support to one another for the greater good. And so I've always benefited from those. Thanks. So returning to Sanders, that's something you wanted to really make sure that the officer cadets were aware of? Yeah, largely because it's very difficult to create situations where they're faced with a a moral dilemma or to be able to show moral courage in a raw and real way. It was very difficult to do that in training. And you had these sort of conversations with junior ranks at Sandhurst, which are a really useful insight to officer cadets at the time, but it isn't the reality of having to work with and lead them when they actually commission. And I guess the other thing was trying to broaden the education just slightly further to both the realities of the the environment they're going to operate in and what that demands of them when it comes to critical thinking. And I think I'd sort of picked up along the way as opposed to ever being taught something specific myself. But because there's such a a willing audience, it was just fertile ground to, to try and exploit your left and right boundaries with just how capable some of these individuals are. So I only did the short course at Sandhurst as a reservist, but the main cognitive tool we learned for planning was the combat estimate, which is a really useful, powerful tool. I guess you're saying is that's a great tool. And in addition, particularly for the kind of operations we're going to be doing more in the future, it's developing that diversity of thinking and finding ways to think beyond just the estimate. Yeah, I I think I was conscious that the estimate is a great tool. And as we started to talk more and more about these complex environments in which we operate, we would often reward people for thinking the same way as a result of having used the estimate. I think that was one of the frustrations I had as a platoon commander at Sandhurst. There's a very good reason that you make sure people learn how to use it the same way, but I wanted them to be really clear on how you can maximize that as a process, but also how you can really generate creativity to try and overcome some of these you know, difficult problems. We keep talking about the requirement for cognitive diversity in the army, and it just seemed like there's a huge dissonance because we also reward people for, for thinking the same way. And there's a real tension between the two. So I wanted them to be conscious of it now at such a informative period in their education. What methods did you use to develop cognitive diversity and new ways of thinking? within um, the platoons yeah that's a good point I'm just trying to think back with the, the platoon we used to have um, sounds a bit childish Movie Mondays was a great one we didn't sit there and watch, watch movies but we would play snippets of people talking publicly or a TED talk for example or a clip from the news that might have just been of interest and it wasn't necessarily me telling them something it was asking them why do you think I've just shown you that and having conversations and debates around the peripheries of some mainstream thinking or and, and then trying to relate that back to the challenges that they're going to face in the future. And was that because the challenges that we face as a military going forward involve more complex environments? And is it also ways of solving traditional problems in different ways? The cliche always used at Sandhurst and, of course, Brecon is how do you deal with clearing a defensive position? And I guess there's a limit to the ways you can do it but it's, it's not necessarily that they will do it in a radically different way. It's just encouraging them to think about more creative ways of solving that problem. I mean, it was too early on in their career to start thinking about, you know, the full spectrum of effects they could start to generate. And you're right, you know, some of the scenarios that we, we push out are, are too simple to then employ some of these um, other assets. 
So you're absolutely right. It was just about giving them broader awareness that yes, while you're here, this is a really useful tool to to push out an answer to a fairly simple problem. As things develop, you've got to look beyond the immediacy and think around the problem as much as you can. So it's instilling in them the understanding that creativity and diversity thinking is really important, not just delivering the estimate incredibly well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so from there, you moved into permanent joint headquarters or joint force headquarters? Joint force headquarters, yeah. What does that involve as a job and how did that change your experience of leadership? Is it just like going into a bigger version of a platoon? The Joint Force Headquarters, it's a bit of an innocuous name, but it's probably the most exciting staff job, at least, you can get in defence. So one-star organisation, there's about 52 people that work there, and we delivered global contingencies and crisis response. That's everything from disaster relief on the sort of far left of ARC all the way up to small-scale intervention. The real enjoyment from that is the autonomy you get from that, you're sort of trusted to deliver your sort of little remit that you might own. So you won't go out as a full 52, you'd go out as a Small. few of you within that specialty. Yeah, absolutely. So we used to deploy, they're called operational layers on reconnaissance teams, and they can span from two of you all the way up to a large OLRT would be up to about 12. And that's your immediate, defence's immediate recce platoon effectively for these operational strategic issues. The headquarters holds those OLRTs at four hours notice to move for a global contingency. So, so that's the op- operation liaison and response team? Reconnaissance team. Reconnaissance yeah. team. You got it. And they were held at four hours notice to move so that if anything happened, you get a phone call and within four hours you are in a position to respond. But concurrent to that, all of you have regional responsibilities. So mine happened to be Lebanon, Jordan, Israel. Uh, that would primarily take up most of my time. So I'd visit these countries, understand the issues, come up with contingency plans, as well as being on four hours notice to move for rest of the world. So it's pretty exciting. You get you know a huge amount of traveling as well, which is great. And were you ever deployed for an operational role? Yes, um, the, the headquarters deploys really frequently. The first one was in response to um, Hurricane in the Bahamas. That was end of 2019. And I sort of went out, There was about six of us that went forward, and I worked in the National Emergency Management Agency. Where did the leadership take place in Joint Force Headquarters? It's quite an interesting one, because when talking about national crises, you end up working across all the government departments. So obviously your main plug into that country will be through the military, but in a disaster relief, for example, there's a huge amount of civilian agencies and other government departments you end up working with. And certainly in JFHQ, you would often be working with civilians that require you know, a different way to communicate with, a different way to, to motivate and to lead. And you can't make the same assumptions as a soldier, basically. And you've also got to take into consideration a lot of emotional uh, response because whilst I'm slightly more emotionally detached from the events because it's, I'm not responding to a, a crisis in my country, often the people responding to that incident in their home nation have got friends, family, involved and so they're you know highly stressed because the you know the response itself but they're also emotionally exhausted because friends and family might be injured or have died or are suffering. Can you give an example of how that affected you and was there a leadership decision that you had to take? Certainly within a a platoon or a company you can be quite direct and and you can move quite fast because there's a lot of assumed knowledge and understanding. You know, we all know our role in that organisation. 
if it's moving and, and well rehearsed and practiced, you don't have to say a lot for a lot to get done. So the National Emergency Management Agency is only put together in the event of an emergency. So there's a whole bunch of people who've never done that job because it's been a requirement and a whole bunch of external agencies from different nations that just thrown in together. This is in the Bahamas. This, Yeah, for this particular example. And so you can't make those assumptions anymore. You have to, it's laborious because you have to explain everything. It takes time, as I mentioned. It takes a huge amount of patience, far more than it does in a, in a platoon because things get done without you necessarily having to, to get so involved. You have to like double, double check, triple check everything, but you're trying to do that in such a way that you don't, People don't find it offensive that you're checking their homework all the time. But because it's all about delivering that effect forward, you can't take that risk. So it's great to be able to trust in a, in a platoon or a company. You can empower people, but that's because they know their job. And it's very different in a situation where you've got civilian search and rescue, military search, search and rescue, and other aid agencies trying to help out. And was there a specific example that you, you, you found a way through that? Or was it just a case of every day you had to go in and keep yourself thinking about checking something, but also effectively managing the responses of the people that you are overseeing. Like a lot of these things, you, you look back and you've learned from the experience, but at that moment in time when you're, you're in it, you're probably just testing and adjusting. And I can think of a conversation, I remember a very stressful conversation I had with a lady who was organizing the delivery of aid by helicopter uh, from the mainland out to many of the islands. She had family on this island. She hadn't heard from them, didn't know if they were okay. And she was desperate to get stuff out there because she hoped she would then find out about her family. But they were absolutely not the priority at the time. We were desperate to get more aid out to a different location. I couldn't quite understand why she kept complaining, well, disagreeing, sorry, not complaining, until obviously the more time you spend there, the more time you get to know these people. And she then explained that she had family there. You know, in a heartbeat, you suddenly understand why. And so you look for alternate solutions to her problems that you can unlock your problem. You know, again, it's a great example of you've got to understand these people and, you know, know what makes them tick and all those underlying motivations in order to get the most out of them. But in a crisis, you don't have that time, which makes it so much more difficult. You know, it's great when I've worked with one of my corporals for two years, might come back as a company commander. I've known him for four, six, eight, ten years. But in that instance, I'd met that woman 48 hours prior in a stressful situation and you're trying to get the, the maximum out of them. So we tried to use logic as much as possible. So they couldn't argue with what we were trying to do because they agree with it because it makes so much sense and to try and overcome some of the emotional issues that were involved. And if you were to be in that situation again, would it just mean that you're more aware when you come up against the barrier, you think there's something else going on here. It's not just a problem with the logic. Yeah, definitely. And then you, and then you can maybe dig a bit deeper. Yeah, that kind of manifested again in, it was a similar experience, but it worked out differently in Beirut the following year. There was an explosion in the port. Uh, I'd actually just left the port that morning, landed in London at about midday at four o'clock the explosion. I flew flew back out again. And only this time, because Lebanon sat within my region, I'd been out there so many times. I, I had relationships with everyone in the embassy, in the Lebanese armed forces, so I knew all these people, including some civilians that worked in, in locations that we needed access to. And I was sort of texting them, asking if their family were okay, you know, if their sort of son was safe. And how it manifested on this occasion was that what I wasn't prepared for was where this time I was in uniform as the military response to this disaster, they make the assumption that, you know, we do this all the time. We're used to huge explosions and injuries everywhere and, you know, treating casualties and delivering aid. 
And whilst we get trained for that, that's not, you know, that doesn't happen on a daily basis. So this is still you know, new and novel to me every time I do it. And so the deputy head of mission, some of the um, intelligence analysts that work there, some members from DFID all started telling me their stories, their concerns, everything else, and sort of putting a lot of uh, their emotional stress onto me because they think on this, you know, this rock that they can now rely on, you know, the military here, great. Uh, I really wasn't prepared for that. And it became like a second responsibility to the actual military response was to make sure the embassy staff were were in a strong enough position to carry on operating because ultimately they, they're the ones who are going to have to live through this and deliver it. And I'd go home in, you know, three or four weeks, they carry on living there. As much as I was prepared for the military response, I probably wasn't quite as, as ready for that. And it became something that we discussed when we got back about this is how important our relationships are and why we have to be well plugged into the network. So you ended up having an unexpected leadership role as being the sort of pastoral role. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's absolutely the best way to describe it. It was so significant on that occasion that when we got back and discussed it in our sort of after action review process, we were trying to identify how, how do we inculcate this into the rest of the organization and, and make that something that we now consider going forward. It was wow. that well, big of an experience. How did that affect you? taking on that pastoral role? I think there was two parts to it, really. Uh, in the first instance, there's never enough time in the day to do everything you want. Everyone recognizes that. And so when, when you're in a crisis response mode, you're push and pulled everywhere. And what I ended up doing was I was getting pulled out of delivering the military response in order to have these conversations, but I recognized the importance of them so we would never walk away from them. But it just puts more pressure on you then to deliver what you're actually there to do. And it was this compounding issue. And it was almost harder than leaving because you, you feel like a bit of a tourist. And it's, a, it's an odd feeling to be so immersed in this experience and then just to walk away from it. Yeah. After you did your time at Joint Force Headquarters, you went into come to command at the Ranger Regiment. But at a very critical time when they were rebadging from their original infantry line cap badges into the Rangers cat badge. We all know how important regimental history and identity is to the army and to individuals within those regiments. That sounds like a pretty challenging time. Can you talk me through that? The challenge wasn't quite as pronounced as I, as I thought it might be. In some respects, that was probably due to the, the journey having started with specialized infantry through to the Rangers. We changed our structure. We were absolutely recruiting as a division as opposed to just the regiment. It was more acutely felt, I think, by the late entry officers who'd spent their entire lives in, in a regiment and the loss of which had you know, emotional impact on them because when you're changing the property, some of the, the pictures and photographs are very emotionally charged events that they probably took part in. For a lot of the younger guys, it was a, a very exciting time because it's a, a role in which they were selected and trained to do and were, were keen to enact that change. So there's a little bit of a tension within that, but change had to come nonetheless. You know, it was, it was, it was going to happen and we, we tried to tackle that head on. How did you tackle it head on? What were the ways that you made this happen? And without losing that moral component of fighting power? We recognised that, that in order to become what the Ranger Regiment needed from us, there was going to have to be some some change. I remember in our first week, actually, I arrived right at the start of our validation. We were the, the company to go through first, so we had an initial operating capability. Then a company was validated as a Ranger Regiment on the day that we 
change cat badge. And I started the very week we started that process. And we sat the company down and we kind of discussed how how we were going to approach this. I was quite fortunate with my, my company sergeant major at the time. He'd already identified where we'd been absent of offices for some time. We already had a lot of senior NCOs who were having to step up. He sort of said to me, look, we need to capitalize on this in order to be able to drive down responsibility. And one of the critical things in a Ranger Regiment, but more broadly in a special operations task group, is that there's a slight inversion to how we operate compared to a normal battle group or company. And what we try and do is you drive down assets and authorities as low as possible. If you can drive it down to the task group, which is the company level, or the task unit, the teams, it allows you a much faster decision cycle to get ahead of you know the enemies of the loop. In order to do that, you've got to have senior and junior NCOs able to take that responsibility. And so we sat them down at the very start and we said, look, we are going to do everything we can to give you this responsibility. And this is the exchange we want from this. We're going to give you this freedom, but the quid pro quo is you have to step up and deliver. This was for the testing phase, but also for the cultural change for the rebadging? Well, so this formed, this was the promise we were making to them in order to get ourselves through this training and validation. But it fundamentally underpinned the cultural change, moving away from how we'd operated previously all the way through to, to our sort of validation. All, all of this was new. It was new for me, the Sergeant Major, uh, and everyone uh, within the team. And we knew we were going to get things wrong, and we wanted to maximize that experience. And the, sort of the phrase we used to live by was, we're going to fail fast, we're going to learn quick. And we knew in order to basically create an environment in which everyone felt safe to fail, we had to show a degree of vulnerability, which I know we've we sort of spoken about before. And in particular, by creating a, an after-action review process where it fundamentally starts with, what, you know, what did we get wrong? But that was my opportunity to, to tell them, look, you know. So you were the first person to stand up and say what you as an individual had got wrong, not stand up and saying, this is what we got wrong. It's like, this is what I could have done better. Yeah, I mean, we, we wanted to create an environment where they felt supported enough. You know, this we, we want you to be comfortable in talking about failure. And if I could stand there and say at least, I didn't give you enough support on that objective, or I wasn't clear enough in my intent, you know, I was lazy, but I was under pressure. And because of me, I don't think you really knew what you needed to do. Mm. And these are the sorts of things you were saying in these after-action reviews. Y- yeah, I mean, and, and you know, in, some, <laughs> in many cases, it was true. Because... It, but at least showing that sort of vulnerability it encouraged them to do the same because they felt so sufficiently supported that it, it doesn't matter if they get it wrong, it doesn't matter if they fail because we're all in this together. And we're, we were so desperate to ensure that that was the case. It had to come from the top because if it didn't, it would, it would never grow naturally. And it became a really bruising process on, on many occasions, you know, to sort of stand there, not just with, with my company that I'm trying to, to lead, but with a lot of external validators and other organizations that are watching us train and sort of, you know, lay your heart on your sleeve and, you know, be that honest. And how was it received by battalion command or regimental command by the validators? Was it like, oh, I mean, this is like an honesty event, you know, what's going on? Or, or was the outcome that you were starting to see genuine mission command and start to see genuine improvement much quicker than you expected to? There was definitely a leap in, in mission command in the first instance, it's just out of necessity. There was just so much to do, to learn, 
that I had to. I mean, the, the headquarters alone was 80 people and I had five deployed teams underneath me. I can't own anything. If I tried, it would, it would crumble. So I, I had to give that responsibility down. It led to a lot of new and novel changes to how we approach the estimate and how our team can own a lot of those problems. But it stems from that sort of level of vulnerability. I was happy to, to let it all go down to them because we knew if that didn't work, we'd talk about it and we could change it. And so that was the great thing about the whole process was it was all about you know, learning as quickly as we can. It meant we could change the way we behaved if it wasn't working you know, really quickly. And the results were good from it. Well, yeah, I would say that, obviously, but um, it led to a really enjoyable period. Yeah, I loved it. And would you say this has all come from your initial experience where you took over the platoon in Afghanistan and you're trying to make change in flight and having to sort of walk on eggshells to enact change, whereas now it seems like you're making change the lifeblood of the Rangers? It's only on reflection that I can sort of look back and, and see the difficulty of enacting that change when I was, it was almost too late and I was, I was in the contact battle. And that I'd seen on a couple of occasions when commanders had shown vulnerability how powerful that can be in garnering respect and trust. And I think those two sort of experiences combined meant that when, when I first arrived, I knew we had a lot of change to get through that would become built into the process, you know, into the sort of the lifeblood of the company. James, thanks so much for talking all of that through with me. The overriding thing that I take from it is about how to enact change and thinking about your style of leadership, it very much seems to me that it's based around vulnerability, if I'm honest, and, and that willingness within yourself to speak to others, talk about what you have got wrong and your concerns with the intention of making everything better. And would you say that that vulnerability and honesty is kind of what defines the way you have developed leadership? It's definitely developed into that. I, w I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have said that that's what I was like when I first commissioned, but I've definitely grown into that position. And I think more so at the company level because it allows me to give people who really know their business the opportunity to actually do it. Great. We're going to finish with three quick questions. First one, what would your perfect Sunday look like? <laughs> uh, without my wife, my kids and reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I, uh, I know how that feels. Are there any books, podcasts or films that have taught you about leadership? And it could come from an unexpected source. Man, there's, there's stacks, so I'm conscious of time. Um, I, th I think the most valuable podcast I've listened to is Teamcast, Mission Critical Teams Institute. It's been hugely beneficial and, and actually we encourage everyone in the company to listen to it. Yeah, really powerful. If you could offer one piece of advice to Second Lieutenant Beckett mm. about leadership, given what you know now, what would that be? Know the people. It's, it's, you know, you get told this in training, but it's just so valuable. If you're a people person, you'll get it right. In our conversation, James reflected on the interplay between commissioned and non-commissioned leadership that they're different roles and responsibilities, but that honesty, trust and partnership will build teams that, and I love this phrase, sing together. One way to achieve that is to have uncomfortable conversations early on. He also talked about going beyond processes to find creative solutions to problems. That meant empowering teams and giving them the space and confidence to make mistakes and get things wrong in training. 
James did that by flipping After Action reviews on their head and being radically honest about his own failings and mistakes. That vulnerability and humility developed a mutual trust and gave his team the confidence to reflect on how they could develop, helping them achieve high levels of performance. What was great throughout all of this is that James looked at actions and tactics that he could put into place with his leadership, but how they also required an internal change in him, uh, a shift in how he thought about emotion or opening up to more vulnerability. This was an episode of The Human Advantage, presented by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Catherine Carr from Feast Collective on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army, or the United Kingdom government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.